All right, we're in John chapter 3. We're working our way through the Gospel of John, and, and we have come to what has to be the most famous nighttime conversation in the history of the world, the nighttime conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And there is so much juice in this gospel grape, we just can't drink it all at one sitting. <laughs> so we're kind of breaking it up into bites. Last week we dealt with the first 10 verses or so, and today we're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 15. But let's get a flow, uh, get a sense of the whole flow of the conversation. So let's start in John 3 and verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. In our text this morning, we have some questions. There are some implied questions, and there are some explicit questions, and then the answers that go with those questions. So this morning, let's have a little Q&A. We're going to have some questions and answers in our, in our passage this morning. If you have your bulletin, there's that listening guide on the back panel. Let's start, first of all, with the question of comprehension. Jesus has already told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You have to be born from above. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We've talked about that already. And so uh, Nicodemus asked the question in verse 9, how can these things be? There's that question of comprehension. How can these things be? How does that work? How can a man be born again or born from above? Nicodemus has built his entire life on an assumption or belief. He assumes that to get into the kingdom of God, he basically, one, has to be a Jew, and number two, be a good Jew. <laughs> he has to be a faithful, observant, devout Jew. You have to be a Jew who keeps the law of God, not only keep the law of God, but the man-made rules around the law of God. And Nicodemus has built his whole life on that. Remember, we saw last week, he's a Pharisee. His whole life is about keeping those rules. That's the Pharisees. He's a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin. He is the teacher of Israel, Jesus calls him in verse 10. So his whole life is about being a sincere, faithful, devout Jew. If you could earn your way into the kingdom of heaven by being a faithful, religious, devout person, Nicodemus is good. But Jesus said, that won't do it. Nicodemus, you got to be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus blows that assumption. He blows, he blows up Nicodemus' whole life. It just goes away right there. Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can these things be? 
And then Jesus has a question for Nicodemus in verse 10. How do you not know these things? <laughs> in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? How can you not know these things? Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel, a teacher of the Old Testament. Now keep in mind that everybody didn't have their own Bible back in those days. Aren't we blessed? I mean, we're so fortunate. We got Bibles. We got Bibles on top of Bibles. We've got Bibles that coordinate with different outfits. I mean, we got, we got every kind of Bible you can imagine. People didn't have their own Bible. If you wanted to know the Scriptures, you had to find a teacher who could teach you the Scriptures and what was in the Scriptures and what the Scriptures meant. How do you live in light of the Scriptures? Nicodemus is one of these men. So he has that fortunate expertise. He has that information. He is a teacher of the things of God, and yet he doesn't know these things. Now, implied here is that with that familiarity with the Old Testament Scriptures, this idea of being born again and being born of water and of the Spirit should not have been that foreign to Nicodemus. Now, granted, he wouldn't have understood whole, all the ins and outs that Jesus would die on the cross and be raised again. I mean, he, he couldn't have anticipated all of that. But it shouldn't have been so foreign. Uh, he, he should have, with his familiarity of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he, he, he should have anticipated this advent and what Jesus is talking about. But really, the problem with Nicodemus is not a lack of information. It's not ignorance, a lack of knowledge. The real issue is unbelief. That's the real problem, the problem of unbelief. Now, let's back up. At the end of chapter 2, in verses 23 through 25, we looked at these verses a few weeks ago. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast... Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. We talked about believing believers. We talked about an unbelieving belief, belief without faith, people who believed without really believing, and Jesus did not believe their believing. <laughs> he didn't have any faith in their faith. He didn't trust their trusting in him. It was a superficial faith. You remember that? Shake your head, yes. Oh, yeah, I remember that sermon. That was wonderful. Okay, you're with me. Um, that's the idea. Nicodemus is a case in point. And in verse 25, he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. The chapter and verse divisions in your Bible are not inspired. They didn't come from God. When John sat down and wrote the Gospel of John, he didn't finish chapter 2 and goes, okay, now let's see, chapter 3, how should I begin chapter 3? I know, I'll say there was a man named Nicodemus. No, John wrote one text. Somebody way later came back and said, you know, it would be a lot easier if we could just kind of chop this up into smaller bites. And so the chapter and verse divisions were added much later. Sometimes they make perfect sense and they're very helpful. Sometimes they don't make any sense and they're not helpful. This is one of those times. Verses 23 through 25 at the end of chapter 2 serve as a transition. They move us from Jesus cleansing the temple to the conversation with Nicodemus, but they really introduce Nicodemus. This is an introduction. People who believe without believing, and Jesus knows what's in their heart, and Jesus not trusting their, their faith. He didn't have any faith in their faith. Nicodemus is a case in point. There was a man named Nicodemus. He, I mean, he's a case study in this. And Jesus, uh, knowing what's in his heart, he gets right to the point. Nicodemus says, oh, Rabbi, we know that you come from God, and nobody could do these things except God was with him. Whether he really meant that, whether he was sincere or just being flattering, um, we don't know. But Jesus doesn't respond. He just gets right to the heart of the matter. Nicodemus, I want to tell you, you got to be born again. He just gets right to the crux of the matter. Nicodemus, 
You must be born again. Now, notice in verse 2, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God. We. Who's we? Well, his fellow Pharisees, the other members of the Sanhedrin, the other religious leaders, the gatekeepers of religious life in Jerusalem. But now in verse 11, Jesus said, Truly, truly, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. Now, who's Jesus talking about? Who's we? Is it Jesus and John the Baptist? Is it Jesus and his disciples? Maybe it's Jesus and God the Father and God the Spirit. It could be any or all of those or any combination of the sort. Notice... Notice that, and then Jesus says, we, we speak what we know, we testify what we have seen, and you, that's plural, you, you all, all y'all, you and yours do not accept our testimony. In verse 2, Nicodemus says, we know, me and mine, we know. And Jesus says, yeah, we know some stuff too. <laughs> and you don't believe us. You do not believe. You do not accept. That's the real issue. You don't accept. In verse 11, you do not accept our testimony. In verse 12, I told you earthly things, and you do not believe. Nicodemus and, and, his, and his, his friends, they do not believe. They do not accept. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 2. A natural man, talking about a man without the Spirit, an unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So it really brings up another question. Again, Q&A, here's, here's the question. How will you believe? And that's why we're, we hear Jesus say in verse 12, If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How will you believe? You already don't believe. How are you going to believe more? Now, what are the earthly things and heavenly things. I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. Well, in the context here, earthly things would be the new birth. The new birth. You have to be born again, born from above. You have to be born of water, born of spirit. And Nicodemus does not believe. He's, he does not accept that testimony. And that's earthly in the sense that you are born again, born from above in this earthly existence. It is now, it is in this mortal lifespan in this earthly realm, that you decide what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. You don't decide later after you die. You decide now while you're alive on the earth. And it's also earthly in the sense that it's, this is elemental. If you don't believe the new birth, how are we going to move on to heavenly things? I mean, this is just first base. If you, if you can't manage to touch first base, how are we ever going to get you around third, third and, and on into home, home plate? No, this is elemental. If you don't believe earthly things how will you believe if i tell you heavenly things now what are the heavenly things well in the context heavenly things would be the plan of redemption he's going to tell us here in verses 14 through 17 that that the son of man is going to be lifted up that god gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life the whole plan of redemption that's heavenly things uh, the kingdom of god that's really kind of the thesis of this whole conversation except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of god to 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 live under god's reign to live in the realm of god's rule and and ultimately in the consummation of god's kingdom his eschatological kingdom heavenly things future things eternal things and then there's also the relationship between jesus and god the father god the son god will give his only begotten son that's a heavenly thing. How in the world do you understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? These are 
heavenly things. If you can't believe earthly things, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now that leads us up to the source of authority in verse 13. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Here's, here's the source of authority. Here's the question. Why believe Jesus? Why should Nicodemus believe Jesus? Why should you believe Jesus? How would Jesus know what he's talking about? When he presumes to tell us earthly things, being born again, born of water, born of spirit, when he presumes to tell us heavenly things, how does he know? Why should we believe Jesus? Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's the teacher of Israel. He has human authority. Jesus has heavenly authority. Where does the heavenly authority come from? Heaven. <laughs> because Jesus came from heaven. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. No one's gone to heaven to check out the situation and come back and tell you all about it. The one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I'm the one who reveals these things. You remember what, what he showed us in chapter 1, in chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He's God the Son. Over in John chapter 6, Jesus is going to hammer this point. He, he hits it again and again in, in, chapter, in chapter 6. Notice in verse 33. Chapter, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Chapter 6, verse 33. The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And verse 38. I have come down from heaven, and not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And chapter 6, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And, and verse 51. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. Jesus came from heaven. You know, sometimes we'll say, been there, done that. You know, somebody will say something. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Been there, done that. I know, I know what you're talking about. Been there, done that. Got the T-shirt and everything. Yeah, I've experienced it too. I know what you're, I, I can relate. Jesus can say, I can tell you heavenly things because I've been there, done that. <laughs> he can tell us of heavenly things because he came from heaven. He can tell us about eternal things because he is eternal. In the beginning was the word. He can tell us about God because He is God. He is God the Son. He has that authority. No one has ascended into heaven but the one who descended from heaven, the Son of God. And by the way, as we, as we think about that in verse 13, this is free. You ought to be very skeptical, very skeptical, very suspicious, and very judicious about people's testimonies. When they say they died and went to heaven and come back and they have a story to tell. You ought to be very careful. Don't believe half of what you hear. Be very careful. Take it with a grain of salt. Be very Listen, you base your hope, your faith, your theology, you base it on the one who came from heaven. Not on somebody that had a near-death experience and they saw a light and all that. I mean, that's, there's about 20 different explanations for some of those things, including it could be real or it could be satanic. I mean, it could... It runs again. Just be very careful. And I know there's books out there and testimonies and videos and movies. You just, you be careful. You base your hope and your faith on the one who came from heaven, Jesus Christ. And then he says, the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite messianic title for himself. 
He very rarely called himself the Messiah. You almost almost had to back him into a corner to get him to say it because of all the baggage that came with that title, what what the Jews thought the Messiah would be and what he would do and what they expected him to do. And Jesus didn't want to feed into that, but he loved calling himself the Son of Man. It speaks of his humanity. He's God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It speaks of his suffering. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah, the suffering Messiah. And it also speaks of his heavenly origins, his divine origins. You go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel had a vision of heaven. He sees the ancient of days. That would be God, God the Father, God proper. And the Son of Man approaches this heavenly being, this heavenly persona, the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. So it speaks of his humanity, his suffering, and his divine origins. Bottom line is that Jesus has the source of authority. Why would you believe what Jesus had to say about earthly and heavenly things? Because he came from heaven. <laughs> he is eternal. He's the Son of God. He has the authority to tell us. And then that brings us to the plan of redemption. And now it gets good. Look at the plan of redemption. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Oh, there's good stuff here. Here's the question. How does God save sinners? I mean, that's really the question that Nicodemus asked in verse 9. How can these things be? How do I get born again? How do I get born from above? How does God save sinners? How can these things be? Here's the answer. We start with the cross. Here's the plan of redemption. We begin with the cross. You remember John likes double meanings. We've already seen that. He likes double meanings. The word translated lift up here in verse 15 or in verse 14, as Moses lifted up. The word translated lifted up is one of those double meaning words. It's used in two different ways. It means to lift up, <laughs> to make high, to elevate. It also means to lift up to honor to exalt, to praise or glorify. It's a double meaning. And John, John uses this like five different times in three different passages, and it's always about the cross. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. He was elevated. He was suspended between heaven and earth. He was raised on a cross, and he's also glorified on a cross. It's a double meaning. We, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he, it, is, it is glory. And John is ultimately revealed and manifested in the humiliation of the cross. That's a little bit of irony, too. Double meaning and irony. He is exalted, glorified, and honored in the humiliation of the cross. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus will say in John chapter 8, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He. And in chapter 12, He says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which He was to die. Then He goes on to say, the Son of Man must be lifted up. That brings us to the necessity of the cross. So we have the cross. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. And then the necessity of it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must, must be. It's required. We hear it in John, in John 12. The Son of Man must be lifted up. In Mark 8.31, Jesus said he, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He must be lifted up. 
In, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't possible. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? Why was it so necessary? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why must the Son of Man suffer many things and be crucified and be raised again the third day? Because that's the only way you can be saved. That's the only way that our sins could be atoned for. There, there was no other way. There's no other provision. The only way a holy God could save sinners condemned in their sins was for his son to die on the cross, to be made sin for us. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then in the next chapter, he says, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. <laughs> so all those animal sacrifices you were counting on won't do it. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and animal blood won't do it. It has to be the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, we sing the hymn, What can wash away my sins? You know the answer. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What did John the Baptist when he, say when he saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the world. The only, the only, the only sacrifice that could atone for our sins was the Lamb of God. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. The Son of Man must be lifted up. It's the necessity of it. The writer of Acts would say, there's, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name. Jesus will tell us in John 14, there's no other way. <laughs> I'm the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. It was the only way. He must be lifted up. That's the necessity of the cross. And then notice the type of the cross. The type. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What is he talking about? Well, that takes us back to Numbers 21. So hang on to John 3. And let's go to Numbers 21. Jesus brought it up, so we might as well go and look. <laughs> and in Numbers 21, this is the era of the wilderness wanderings. Remember Moses, the children of Israel, the Exodus and all that. Wilderness wanderings. And Numbers 21 in verse 4. They set out from Mount Hor by the way of Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. What are they talking about? Manna from heaven. This miraculous bread that God gave. Manna from heaven. There's no food, no water. We're sick of the manna. And God just brought us out here to die. Ram, 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 ram. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. God is not amused. God begins to judge his people. So the people came to Moses and said, We have, not, we have sinned. It's a good place to start. Confess and repent. <laughs> we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And in Biblical interpretation, there's this thing called typology. And that is where 
a person or a place or event in the Old Testament prefigures or foreshadows or anticipates a person, place, or event in the New Testament. The thing, person, the, the, the person, place, or event in the Old Testament is called a type, and what it prefigures or foreshadows in the New Testament is the antitype. So here, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness is a type of Christ on the cross, the antitype. Back in the wilderness, the people were judged by God. They were bitten by serpents. Moses fashioned a bronze serpent, set it up, elevated it, lifted it up, made it high in the camp. And anyone who believed God enough to look at the serpent on the staff would be healed of the bite of the serpent that was killing him. So the serpent is an image or representation. It represents what is killing him, a serpent bite. That's a type of Christ. It prefigures, it shadows, foreshadows Jesus Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You and I have been bitten by a serpent. We've been bitten by sin. Our sin is killing us. The wages of sin is death. But just like in the Old Testament, God gave a means of grace in the midst of judgment. And His Son... God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. The very thing that bit us and is killing us. Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. He represents that, that, that sin. He, he was made a curse for us. And if you believe God enough and faith in Jesus, you'll be healed of what's killing you. Sin. Healed. Forgiven. Saved. As Moses Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a type, a type of Christ. Not a kind of Christ, but a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of Christ. And then there's this issue of faith. This is the plan of redemption. So we have the cross, and then we also have belief or faith in verse 15. So whoever believes will in him have eternal life. There's our word believe again. We've talked about that quite a bit. Pistuo. To believe, except is true. To believe to the point of trusting. To put your faith in. To become a believer in the gospel. To believe in Christ. To follow Christ. Or to entrust yourself to Christ. Whoever believes. That's how you have eternal life. How can these things be? How do you get born from above? Born again. Born of God. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we talked about this last week. You're saved by grace through faith. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's by grace. It's God's gift. And you receive it by faith. You put your faith in a risen Savior. You trust His death to atone for your sins. You trust His resurrection to give you life. You entrust your life, death, and eternity to Jesus Christ. We said last week, if we could use the, the Gamulers vocabulary, we would say, you bet the farm on Jesus. I mean, it's all or nothing on Jesus. If He doesn't save me, I'm doomed. It's all Jesus. I, I trust Jesus with everything. So that's how, that's how these things, this is the plan of redemption. It's the cross, it's faith, and then thirdly, notice eternal life. That whoever believes, faith, pistuo, will in him have eternal life. That's the first time we've seen that in John, eternal life. It's not the last time we're going to see it in John, though. This is a theme in John. He's going to talk about this about 17 times, another six times in 1 John. John's excited about eternal life. Now, as we think about eternal life, I want you to notice a few things. Eternal life is in Christ. 
will in him have eternal life. It's in Christ. Now, let's get, let's, well, let me get technical with you a little bit. Hang on, hang on with me. There'll be a payoff. We've talked about pistuo, to believe, to trust, to accept, and trust in. We talked about that. In the, in the language and grammar of the New Testament, usually, most of the time, you believe into Christ Jesus. The, the preposition that is usually used is, is ace. And, you know, ace is the place with the helpful hardware man. You know, it's ace. And typically, it means into, upon, against, um, unto. That's how, that's how you have in John 3.16. Whosoever believeth in him, you pistuo, into, upon, unto, Christ. You believe into Christ and you have eternal life. That's how it usually shows up. And in verse 15 here, though, John does something he never does again. This is, this is weird. If it's weird, it's important. This is weird. You have eternal life in him. It's not ace is the place. It's the preposition in. Uh, E-N is how we would spell it, but it means in, with, or by. You have it in him. Now, I'm pretty sure in the King James it is whosoever believes in him will have eternal life, just like John 3.16. It sounds the same. But here I read the New American Standard, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, both are true. It's not wrong. Both are true. You have eternal life when you believe into Christ Jesus. You put your faith in Christ. But you have eternal life in Christ. In the writings of Paul, Paul's favorite prepositional phrase is in him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, in the beloved. It's in Christ. Paul is in Christ all the day, every day. In him, in Christ, in the beloved. What that, what that means is this. Jesus is, he's the source, the substance, and the sphere of eternal life. He's the source of eternal life. It comes from Jesus. You receive it when you put your faith into Christ, you trust Christ, you receive eternal life from Christ. He said, I've come that they might have life. He, he is the source of life. He's not only the source of it, he's the sphere of life. In him we live and move and have our being. Our life is in Christ. It's, it's all about him. It's, it's, it's of him, through him, for him. He is the sphere of eternal life. And then he's also the substance of our life. Uh, as Paul would say, to, for to me to live is Christ, or Christ who is our life. Christ who is our life. He is the very substance of life as well. It is in him, of him, through him, and to him. Eternal life, it is in Christ. Let me show you something else about eternal life. It is a quantity of life and a quality of life. It's a, it's a quantity and quality. Eternal life is eternal and it's duration. That's how we usually think of eternal life. Eternal life, oh, it means you never die. You live forever. That's what we usually think of. It's eternal. That's not wrong. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, This is the bread that comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Eternal life. It goes on forever. In John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. There's that eternal duration. It, it never ends. It's a quantity of life. But it's also a quality of life. Um, 
we heard in John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's, it's the life that God has and the life that God gives. It's not just eternal in its duration. It's eternal in its quality. In John 10, he said, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. In John 17, 3, Jesus defines eternal life. This is eternal life, not living forever and ever. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is to have a personal relationship with the living God and with his son, Jesus Christ. It is a quality of life. So there's quality and quantity. And then also I want you to see eternal life. It's a present possession and a future hope. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You can have eternal life now. You repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can have eternal life right now. A present possession, born of God, born of the Spirit, uh, born again right here, right now. Made alive to God in Christ, a present possession. But then there's also a future hope. It's kind of already and a not yet. You can have it now, but then there's more to come. That's the idea. Over in, in Colossians 3, Paul says, you, You've died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There's the future hope. Let me show you, let me show you one more thing, and we're going to close here. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. Same, same author, same writer, but 1 John chapter 3. And listen to what John says about this. In 1 John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are, present possession. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are the children of God right now. Such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Again, present possession, a current reality. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be, future hope. We know that when he appears, we will be, will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. There's our future hope. A present possession and a future hope. A current reality and a future expectation. My friend, do you have eternal life? Have you been saved? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you been born again, born from above, born of God? If not, or, or if you're not sure, if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, in a moment we're going to stand and sing our hymn of decision. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I, I need Jesus, or I have questions, or I need to make sure, however you want to say it. And you could leave here today a child of God, a present possession, a current reality. Maybe you're like Nicodemus. You, you assume being religious will save you. Well, yeah, I joined a church, and once upon a time, I, I got baptized, and once upon a time, I said this and did that, and I did the religious thing, or I go to church, and, and, and you thought all that would save you. Jesus told this incredibly religious, devout man, that won't do it. you got to be born again. Except a man be born again, born of God, born from above. He cannot see the kingdom of heaven. I invite you to come. If you've never trusted Christ, or if you're not sure, Come this moment. We're going to stand and sing. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus. I want to be saved. I have questions. Tell me more. And we'd love to talk with you privately, pray with you if you'd like to, that you could leave here today. Child of God, your sin's forgiven. Heaven, your home. We invite you to come. If you know Christ, oh my goodness, look at what we have in Christ Jesus. Look at what he has done for us. Look what he gave to us. And now we ought to do what Jesus said in, in verse 11. We need to speak what we know and we need to testify about what we have seen. 
We need to tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for, for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the new birth. And Lord, I pray for the one who's never been saved and help him to see and to know and understand he needs Jesus. He must be born again. That religion won't save him. Being sincere won't save him. Being fastidious and observance won't save him. But he or she must be born again, born of the Spirit, born of God. Lord, I pray that today that they would, they would look to the cross and live. And God, I pray that we as believers, we would be inspired and encouraged and emboldened to speak of what we know and to testify to what we have seen, the good news of Jesus Christ. Take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.